This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom. Well, I'd like to take as our um, text this morning, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, with the sermon title of What is the True Gospel? Grace be to you, and peace from God the Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul often in his epistles gives little summaries of the gospel. They're very useful. They're worth marking in your Bible, in fact, and memorising them. They're useful for evangelism. And in this epistle, uh, in these verses, we have one of these wonderful little summaries of what the gospel is. Um, and in this gospel generally the question on Paul's mind is what is the true gospel um, this is a, an epistle written to churches in the area of Galatia and false teachers had entered into these churches and were preaching a different an alternative gospel to the one which Paul had so carefully taught and you can sense the tension in the air right from the beginning because you will notice um, normally in his epistles Paul gives a rather lengthy introduction and gives all sorts of um, greetings and what have you. Here uh, there is a very brief greeting and he jumps straight to the point. That's because there is a serious problem. Um, why are they tolerating the preaching of a false gospel why are they allowing certain preachers to pervert the true gospel which Paul had so carefully explained and Paul the apostle right from the start of this epistle emphasizes, emphasizes that the gospel is something very specific it is a specific thing it has a shape, a content and a meaning which is not to be altered, not to be perverted. And he says, even if, uh, if any man or even an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel than him, then let that angel or man be under a curse. And Paul explains that the good news of God's way of salvation through Christ is not something made up by man. That's what we read just now. It's not made up by a committee um, or a commission. It's not a collection of people's opinions. In fact, it did not originate in the mind of a man at all. Uh, neither is it something Paul says that you can learn at university or at college. You can't take a course on it. 
It's something that has to be received by revelation of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1 verse 11 and 12. But I certify you brethren that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man neither was I taught it but by revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, as we know in the studies we've been doing on Tuesdays, the gospel didn't originate with Paul. But what he's saying is that unless God had revealed the gospel to him, he could never have grasped it. He could never have been changed by it unless he had had a revelation of it by Jesus Christ. And it's also true to say that God revealed to this particular apostle, the apostle Paul, mysteries that were concealed in the Old Testament. They were there, um, they were concealed, but through Paul they were revealed. And such was the fullness of the revelation that Paul received, in contrast even to the other apostles, that he went around saying, this is my gospel. We, we would never dare to say that, would we? But Paul had confidence to say, my gospel, because he had had such a direct revelation of the mysteries. Paul had an, an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, utterly changed him, a revelation of Jesus Christ, and then he spent three years in Arabia, and went, then went on to Damascus. And during those three years, he was taught of God like Moses was taught in the wilderness. A time of direct revelation about Christ and the gospel. And he was an apostle, he says, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And during this time in Arabia, God revealed to him with a clarity no one had ever had before, apart from the Lord Jesus, of course of how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, how the ceremonial law is fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Christ, and how men are justified by the, not by the work of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. And so having had such revelation, he carefully taught the churches the precise gospel that he had been entrusted with, and now he finds that false teachers are now perverting it, trying to change it. They're trying to make the gospel more palatable and compatible with the Judaizers who were exercising an influence on these Galatian churches. They were trying to insist that the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, had to be subject to Jewish circumcision, to Jewish kosher food laws and to a very strict Saturday Sabbath and this was an attempt Paul says and discerns to avoid the persecution that comes from believing in the cross of Christ he says as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh in chapter 6 verse 12 they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. We know 
that the synagogues, the Jewish religion, had a kind of protection in the Roman provinces. Uh, there was a kind of a standoff. They weren't persecuted. And so these false teachers are saying, well, if we act like a synagogue, if we shelter under the, under the umbrella of, of Judaism, then we'll escape persecution. And all we have to do is act like Jews, is to, to, is to have synagogue-type liturgy. And this, of course, has parallels today. Trying to adapt the gospel to the culture in which we live. To make it more palatable. But Paul insists that no man or angel has the authority to preach a different gospel. There is only one gospel, and Paul sets this out, and the other apostles, of course, in his apostolic writings. And this is why in the reformed Christian faith, the gospel is not offered as an opinion. It's, it's, a, it's declared, it's announced, it's presented as the only authoritative message from God about the way a man or a woman, a boy or a child, can be saved, to be made right with God. It is salvation through the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone promised in the Old Testament through types and shadows and fulfilled when the King comes, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Saviour when he came, you read it yourself in the Gospels, he, he didn't offer, um, he didn't come and offer his opinions. He didn't say, I, I am one of the ways to God, did he? He said, I am the way. He didn't say, I'm one of the lights of the world. He said, I am the light. He didn't say, I am one of the doors into heaven. He said, I am the door, the only door. He didn't say, I am an element of the truth. He says, I am the truth. Now, Jesus, as he preached, in the, as he preached the gospel in the towns and villages of Palestine, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep, only me. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Jesus spoke as one who had authority. No man ever spake like this man, it was said. People hung on his words and were amazed at the gracious words which came from his mouth. And this same Jesus, now of course gloriously raised from the dead, and ascended into, the, into heaven, now re reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father, and having poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost upon the church, meets with the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He gives Saul a new name, Paul. The man who once persecuted the church and wasted it was gloriously converted and called to be an apostle. Separated, Paul says, unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Galatians 1, 5, 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see, what I'm trying to get at here is that this gospel has an authority, an authenticity. 
from the fact that it was revealed directly to the apostles from the risen Lord Jesus. But not only the content of the gospel was revealed to Paul, the power of the gospel was also wrought in him. It wasn't an, an academic thing. Something changed in him. And he says that he became a model Christian. He became a model, a template of what can happen when a man or a woman comes into contact with Jesus Christ and is saved. In other words, Paul preached a message and a person who had already changed him, radically changed him from what he was. By nature, by personality, Paul was a deeply religious, deeply theological man. He was a serious man. Um, he was a Torah man. And he says in verse 14, uh, and profited, and he profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. But this wasn't enough to save, to save his soul. It wasn't enough to qualify him to be an apostle. He says it wasn't sufficient either for him to consult with the other apostles in Jerusalem. And apart from 15 days with Peter and a brief time with James, he had no contact with the other apostles. That's why he says, I did not receive the gospel from man, not, not even great men like the apostles. God taught him. He went on a three-year Bible course in the wilderness, in Arabia. And once that was completed, he consulted with no man. And the only lecturer at his Bible college was God himself. And he was unknown by face to the church of Judea, known only by reputation as the man-turned-preacher of the faith he once tried to destroy. And he had now been made responsible by God's grace to be the apostle to the Gentiles in the same way as Peter had been made apostle to the Jews. And this anointing, this authority, this apostleship, this ordination of God made him fearless. He didn't care who stood in the way of the gospel. He wasn't motivated, he says, by the praise of man. Do I seek to please men, he says in one ten, For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. And he demonstrated this um, zeal to the truth of the gospel when even the apostle Peter went wobbly. When he, the Apostle Peter stopped having meals with the Gentiles because of the influence of these Judaizers. And Paul confronted Peter. Can you imagine Peter, the leader, arguably the chief apostle? He confronted him to the face for the sake of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. You see, the truth of the gospel for Paul was bigger than any man. Faithfulness to the gospel was bigger than any institution and to any 
denomination. And if, if only people would, would do that today, would believe that today. So the gospel's bigger than, than, than the Church of England, it's bigger than, than any uh, compromised denomination, the, it's bigger than any individual, no matter how good they are preaching or how wise or academic, if they are perverting the gospel, they are to be withstood to the face. And we need to be, uh, as a church, as we I believe we are, very clear about this gospel, the true apostolic gospel. Salvation only comes through the gospel. God didn't promise salvation any other way. It's normally through the preaching of the gospel, not always, but normally through the preaching, but it's always through the gospel. It's always through the word of the gospel. Salvation is not promised via a different gospel, an adapted gospel. It's not promised through a culturally sensitive gospel. And we need to preach the gospel as the church of Jesus Christ we can disagree on other things we can say matters of baptism modes of baptism modes, uh, ways of running churches church governments the millennium, the role of Israel in eschatology um, all these things are not things that none of those things are hills to die on or to divide over in my opinion at least but when it comes to the core of the gospel, we have to be faithful to what Paul teaches here. Because there is a clarity about the true gospel. And that's what our text gives us today. This little summary that we read, verses 3 to 5, gives us a clarity about what is the true gospel. Even at the very beginning of this epistle, I say, Paul jumps straight to the point. He's not happy with these people. But despite the tension, he gives the briefest of, uh, of um, greetings. In verse 3, he says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, of course, is God's love for the unworthy. God's love for the unworthy in Christ. And peace, shalom in the Hebrew, is the physical and spiritual well-being in all its fullness that we receive in Christ. And Paul well, wishes, as it were, grace and peace, grace, shalom to these believers. And then he jumps straight in uh, to this gospel in a nutshell, this gospel summary, which he then expands on through the rest of the epistle. This is his sermon text, which he then goes on to expound in the rest of Galatians. And there's only time just to make some very short points about this summary of the gospel. But I believe they anchor us into what the true gospel is. And the first thing that we notice in verse 4 the second part, um, <clears throat> the second part, the last part of verse four, is this: that the gospel is a result of the sovereign will, the sovereign will and purpose of God the Father. It says, "According to the will of God and our Father." Now, this is often missed out in the, the presentation of the gospel. 
But the saving work of God the Son is proof of the Father's love. Christ came to fulfil the will of who? The will of the Father. And he came to reveal the Father. Salvation originates in the very mind and heart of God the Father. It began in the, what's called in theology the covenant of redemption. The first covenant was not between God and man. The first covenant was among the persons of the Trinity. Specifically between the Father and the Son. That the Father would send the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Most famous verse that most um, even, well, I was going to say most people know, perhaps they used to years ago, but no longer. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Holy Spirit is involved as well. The Holy Spirit is crucial to salvation. Christ was born to Mary, how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ was baptised his, for his ministry by the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus was raised from death, how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's often said that the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation. Well, that's true, but that's not the full truth. The Holy Spirit is intimately connected to the achievement of salvation as well. The day of Pentecost is part of the history of salvation, the Historia Salutis, which we've spoken of before. Without Pentecost, the work of salvation is incomplete because the grand outcome of the cross was not just forgiveness, but life in the Spirit. And so the Christian gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. It involves the work of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Purposed and planned in eternity according to the will of God and our Father. So that's the first point Paul makes in this little summary. Secondly, verse 5. He says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the second point Paul wants to make is that the true gospel results in praise to God and not to man. That's important. The true gospel results in praise to God and not to man. The root word here for glory in the Old Testament conveys the idea of weight. It's a, what's called a literally a, a heavy glory, a heavy worth, a significance, a dignity, the kabod, the fullness of the divine glory, what the Jews called the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, the Greek translation of kabod or glory is doxa, from which we get the word doxology. The true preaching of the gospel leads to doxology, to praise. We read a doxology at the beginning of the service. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways. 
past finding out. Now this is a good test of whether you and I are truly Christian or if our church is truly Christian. If we are, it's a test of whether we're really preaching the true gospel. Does it result in doxology? Does it result in praise to God? If we are taking all the credit for our religious works, it's safe to say that we are not born again. If we think through any external religious or charitable works, we're producing any merit with God, then we're in the same error as these Galatians. They boasted in their work. They boasted in the fact that they were bringing in Jewish customs into Christian life. But Paul, his boast is different. He says in chapter 6, 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, Paul teaches, and we're looking here at the beginning of verse 4. The heart of the gospel is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says at the, sorry, at the end of verse 3, I should have said, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know all this is very basic and obvious, but we need just to be clear what the gospel is. The gospel is essentially the giving of the Son by the Father. Christ does not come with a gift. He is the gift. Himself. To believe the gospel is not to receive something from Jesus. It is to receive Jesus himself. And you receive him so intimately in the real gospel that through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that you are joined to him in a mystical union that is living and unbreakable. You are joined, you're in union with Christ. And the gospel which was revealed to Paul and is the only true gospel, pre presents Jesus in his full titles, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, kurios, the name chosen by the translators of the Greek Old Testament to render the name Yahweh, or Jehovah. He is the Lord, in other words, he is divine, Christ is God, he is the second person of the Trinity. And secondly, he is the Lord Jesus. The name Jesus, Yeshua, or Joshua, was the earthly name given to him by Joseph the angel. Call him Jesus, Joseph was, to was told, for he will save his people from their sins. And this emphasises that the Lord of glory, the eternal person of the Son, became a human being. This is essential to the Gospel too. He became incarnate. He literally enfleshed himself and took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. Charles Wesley said in his, in his hymn, God contracted to a span 
incomprehensibly made man. And therefore, Isaiah says, Emmanuel has come, God with us. He is the Lord Jesus, but he's also the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the promised Redeemer of Israel. The Gospel is all about how the Messiah would come and crush Satan's head, destroy Satan. So the good news for, for sinners today is that God has sent the Son the Son has come, God has come, he's become one of us, and the promises of God have come true. The long-promised Saviour has come, and so now anyone can be saved who wants to be saved. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father, writes Paul, and from our, and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the central message of the true gospel is the substitutionary death of Christ upon the cross. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, who gave himself for our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now made man, gave himself for our sins. This is the great boast of the Apostle in this epistle. But God forbid, he says, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why the cross, the death, the substitutionary death is so central to the Gospel is because it was central to Jesus himself. It was central to his mind, central to his ministry. He was the Son sent by the Father to fulfil the will of his Father and his Father sent him into the world for one purpose. Even at age 12 when his parents found him in the temple he told them, how is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my Father's business? At his baptism and during his temptation in the wilderness Jesus chose the way of obedience and suffering. He chose the road to the cross on our behalf. And Jesus knew, even in even his humiliation and his incarnation, that he would die a violent death. Because what had been written about Messiah in the scriptures was a very violent end. The Son of Man, he said, Indeed, goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Perhaps it was from Isaiah 53 that Jesus learned most about his impending death as a man. In that section of Isaiah's prophecy, the servant of the Lord is presented as despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It was from this chapter more than any other that Jesus would read of how the Messiah was to suffer and die for human sin and then be glorified. And he would be wounded, the scripture said, for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. 
Jesus knew that he was to die for us. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus voluntarily, willingly and for our sakes embraced the purpose of his Father for the salvation of sinners. I have, Jesus says, a baptism to be baptised with and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. How I can't rest, I can't relax. I, my whole mind and life is taken up with the fact that this baptism of death has to be gone through so that I can save sinners because I am dying not for myself but for them. This is why Paul could write here in Galatians our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Even more personally he said in chapter 220 I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I wonder if you and I say that to ourselves, whether we can say that to ourselves, whether you know that Jesus died for you, that you've come to him. And like Paul, you, can, you have a testimony to say, this isn't some kind of theological um, abstraction, it's not some kind of lecture, this is something that's changed me. I've come to the cross myself. Jesus has died for me. He died in place of me and for my sins. Paul could say that. That's why he had such power. There are two parts or elements to the death of Christ which Paul sets out in this phrase, who gave himself for our sins. And Paul said that these two points were non-negotiable if we are to claim that we preach the true gospel. The first is, as I've said, that Christ died for us. I won't repeat all of that. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for us. And secondly, as Paul puts it here in our text, he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Now that we need to preach that in the gospel, otherwise we're not preaching the gospel. The death of Christ was to deal with the problem of sin in the human heart. And sin is the root of all of our troubles. The Bible teaches that man needs a saviour because of the fall of man. The fall of man refers to the fact that God created man perfect and sinless in his first garden home, gave him a righteous law which if he had kept he would have entered into an even greater paradise beyond any possibility of sinning even more wonderful than the Garden of Eden. And man had complete ability, complete ability to obey God. There was no reason for man to sin. And yet without any need to do so, Adam sinned. The blame is on Adam. Eve was deceived. But Adam, it appears, reading between the lines, deliberately, 
rebelled against God. And as the representative head of all of humanity, he broke God's law. And our first parents sinned, they fell from the great height of their original perfection, their innocence. They were, or Adam was, the root of the tree of mankind. Have you ever, you see these, these trees sometimes, don't you, in um, academic courses? But there is a tree of, of mankind, at the very root of the tree of mankind is Adam. And once the root was corrupted, it spread to all the branches of the tree. The guilt of, the, of their sin passed to all mankind down to the present day. And their nature, their human nature, so pure and untainted, became corrupt. And every child, every human born since, through ordinary birth, ordinary generation, according to our Baptist confession of faith, says it says, but are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. I like that last bit. Unless the Lord Jesus sets us free, we inherit all the miseries that came upon Adam through his rebellion against God. And the true gospel message is that through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the problem of our sin has been dealt with. It's only dealt with on a personal level if we individually repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Do you know, there are two things which stand in, I'm speaking more personally now, there's only two things that stand in the way of you and God having a relationship. Two things which, if left undealt with, in the end will mean you will go to hell. There are two things. One is your bad heart, and the other thing is your bad record. Your bad heart and your bad record before God. And the cross of Jesus deals with them both. Through his death for you on the cross, he is able to wash your sins away in his blood and give you a new heart. A clean heart. And he deals with your bad record before God. His death on your behalf is him bearing the punishment that you deserve for your sins. And all those who come to him, all those that come to Jesus, who fall at the foot of the cross and ask for their sins to be forgiven, what happens? Their record is wiped clean. Their bad record before God is wiped clean. We have some sense of this when we try and get a loan, don't we? If we've, if we've got a bad credit record, the, the computer says no and we don't get our shiny new car, do we? Because we can't get the credit. Well, in a much bigger way, our, our, our credit record with God is useless. It's below zero. But in Christ, we, our, our record is wiped away. 
King David uh, understood this perfectly in the 103rd Psalm. He says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. It's only in the cross that your sins can be pardoned. We broke the law. The law was broken. The wrath of God, the punishment of God is on our head. We have a polluted heart, a corrupt human nature. All the miseries of sin come upon us. But in the cross there is salvation. God promises through Jeremiah to be merciful to our unrighteousness and our sins and remember our iniquities no more. But even more than that, God in the gospel through the work of Christ and through his life of obedience and through his death not only wipes away our negative record before God, this is amazing, he gives us a positive record before God. We are counted as righteous in his sight. Not for anything that we have done, but for everything that Christ has done. And as a gift, as a complete gift, the perfection and righteousness of God is credited to our record. So that we are seen as righteous before God. Dear friends, what a gospel this is. And then lastly, we're running out of, we've already run out of time, but very quickly. The true gospel also includes this fact. It includes the radical difference the gospel makes in a person's life. It says here, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. That's the gospel too. The word translated world in the King James is enos, which means is better translated age. He gave himself, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We're not meant to leave the world, but we're meant to leave this age, the values of this age. And the radical difference the cross makes to a person's life is that it delivers them from this age. We still live in this world, but the Christian is someone who is delivered out of the kingdom of darkness, delivered from all the values and the sin and the corruption and the priorities of this age. And the age to come, which we're walking towards that city which has foundations, that new heavens and new earth. It's not just something for the future, Paul teaches. He says the new age is broken into this age. So the Christian is living in two ages. It's, it's uh, the, new, the new age is inaugurated. And we are therefore new creatures in a new creation, translated out of this age of darkness and Delivered out of that and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. We are living in a spiritual kingdom with different powers and values. 
Paul describes this evil age in, as something that we used to walk in. We used to walk according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. We were under the domination of the prince of this age. The Satan. We had our behaviour, our conversation in the lusts of our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath. But now we've been delivered out of this present evil age. Dear friends. Christ's death transfers us from the sphere of Satan's power to that of God. We are delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. That is the gospel Paul preached. That is the gospel which we cannot negotiate about. It's the only message of salvation. There's a lot more we can say. That's the gospel summary. But though, though, that, that is the shape and the content of the true gospel. All of that. It, there's no message in the world like it, is there? A message which came from heaven through God himself, achieved by God himself, and which radically changes a human life and brings deliverance from sin and from Satan. Dear friends, that is the message we preach. That is the true gospel. Let no man nor angel in heaven preach any different. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.